Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Good morning. My name is Dylan, and uh, the scripture readings this, from the, for this morning is from 1 John 4, 7 through 12. Dear friends, let us love one another, because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God's love was revealed, revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we, must, we also must love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. <clears throat> I invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn to 1 John chapter 4. Near the very end of the Bible, John has three letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and then you're pretty much at the end of the Bible. So if you get to a concordance, you've gone too far. Um, we are in, we're continuing our Advent series, and each week we've been highlighting a different aspect of Advent, remembering Christ's first Advent, his first arrival, and anticipating and expecting and looking forward to his second Advent, his second arrival. And by way of a uh, brief review, the first week we talked about hope, last week we talked about peace, and this week we were talking about love. The first week we talked about hope. What is biblical hope? Hope is not a mere feeling. It's not mere optimism. Hope is rather a person, and that person is Jesus the Christ who came down into the world, took on human form, lived for us, died for us, was resurrected from the dead, and ascended to the right hand, and he is still there at the right hand of God the Father, and he's going to return again one day, and that's our hope. We talked about peace last week, Peace is this idea of wholeness, completeness, fulfillment. Again, not just, a, uh, not just a mental state, not just like this internal idea of peace or like, you know, there's no chaos around, but rather this idea of wholeness. And today we're going to talk about love. Now, to be honest, when I, when I started uh, thinking about uh, love and when I was thinking about this sermon, I was quickly overwhelmed because if you think about it, Literally the entire Bible is about love. Like the entire gospel story is about love. Like what is God? God is love. So I was thinking about like what I was going to preach on and how we're going to do this. And I was like, man, should I just like read the entire Bible or like pick a verse and then be like, oh, it's about God. God is love. So here you go. So, um, and I was thinking too, like, well, what more, more can be said? And I think the Beatles summarize it perfectly when they say all you need is love. And that's all we have to need here. By the way, there were a lot of song references as I was prepping for the sermon about love that were going through my head, but I decided to use a little bit of self-control and only make one song reference. So this sermon is going to have two parts. Part one is going to be defining the term. Part one is going to be defining the terms. We need to, if we learned anything from last week, we learned that, you know, peace, we, our definition of words is not always the same as the biblical definition of words. If you remember last week, peace, it's not just this like lack of chaos, it's rather this idea of wholeness, of completeness. So part one, we're going to be defining the terms, and then part two, we're going to look at First John chapter four. So it'll be a, a couple minutes before we get to First John chapter four, 
but I just want to lay the foundation here. Part one, we're going to be defining the terms. Part two, we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 4. And in 1 John 4, we're going to see that God's love is most profoundly accessed in our lives when it's shared with others. So that's where we're going today. Before we do that, I want to continue this posture of worship in prayer to our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Father, Son, and Spirit, we are aware that you are with us right now. We are aware that you're guiding our thoughts. You're guiding this moment. And you are calling out to us from your word. As we recognize your power and your holiness and your love, Lord, I pray that you would give us the ability to listen to your still small voice and the courage to respond. Fill us this morning with yourself, Lord. Provide for us, we pray. Forgive us our sins as we display your love and we forgive others their sins. And Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come here in our hearts and here in Ankeny as it is in heaven. We thank you for all the other churches this morning that are meeting and remembering your advent, your arrival. I pray that you would continue to do a good work in and through your people, your body. Unite our hearts to fear your name. Crucify our flesh, we pray. Fill us with yourself. We pray all these things in your son's name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Defining the terms, the biblical concept of love is primarily active. Love in the Bible is primarily active. This is significant and important because we live in a culture where love has been reduced to something that is passive. Another word for this is sentiment. It's sentimental. It's like the, the idea of sentimental love is passive love. There's the, uh, this passive love, the sentiment love, is like the feeling that you get like when you relate to other people on a TV show more than you can actually relate to people in real life that you work with. The sentiment is uh, this, this person was writing, uh, this professor James Smith was writing about reading um, this, about this healthy lifestyle, about eating healthy, about, you know, this guy lived on a farm and he had his own, grew his own food and crops and animals and all that stuff. And he was really moved by this. And he was like, man, I want to do that. I want to do that. And he looked up from the book and he realized that he was eating pizza and drinking a Coca-Cola flavored a slushy in the middle of a Sam's Club cafeteria. That's sentiment. It's saying like, oh, I want to do these things. I'm moved to do these things, but you don't actually actively change and do those things. Sentiment is saying, this is my favorite, sentiment is saying, mm, when you hear a good word in a sermon or you're listening to a podcast or you read a Christian book and you say, mm, and then when you leave that context, you don't actually ever think about that again or do anything about it. Sentiment is reading an article or, or a statistic about the hurt and the pain in the world, the poverty in our own city, in Ankeny, and not doing anything about it. Sentiment is what the priest and the Levite had in the parable of the Good Samaritan when they walked past the guy who was naked and beat up on the side of the road, rather than an active love and actually caring for him like the Samaritan did. Sentiment is what James says is looking at yourself in a mirror, turning around, and when you leave the mirror, you forget exactly what you look like and you don't do anything about it. Sentiment is being, being moved inwardly, but being stagnant outwardly. Sentiment is this. When I was in high school, I pretended to be really righteous, but I was dead inside. And my dad pulled me aside one day and he said, boy, would you die for Jesus? And I said, yeah, go for sure. 
I had these grandiose ideas about, you know, being bold in my faith, and if somebody had a gun to my head, I'd be like, yes, I would die for Jesus. And he looked at me and he said, if you're willing to die for Jesus, why aren't you willing to live for Jesus? That sentiment and passive love rather than an active, sacrificial love that changes your life. And that is not biblical love. Biblical love is always active. It requires action. Multiple times in the scriptures, Jesus had both sentimental love that led to compassion and active love. Now, when I say, when I say biblical love is not sentiment, it starts that way. You look at the scriptures and you see Jesus perform miracles. What, did it, what does it say right before, a lot of times, what does it say right before he performed a miracle? He was moved with compassion. Jesus saw a broken man, a broken woman in their sin and their sickness. He was moved with compassion. What is that? Sentiment. It didn't stay there though. What did he do immediately after that? Over and over again. He healed them. He forgave them. He loved them. It went from a sentiment inside to an act of love and compassion towards others. In the Hebrew Bible, the ultimate act of God's love for his people is what? The Exodus story. Over and over and over again. If you read the, Hebrew, the Old Testament, they're always referencing back to the Exodus story as proof that God loved them. And if, uh, for, for brief summary, God, uh, Israel was a nation at this point. They were enslaved by Egypt and God heard their cry. God heard their cry. They were oppressed and he heard their cry. He listened to them. He was moved with compassion towards them. Then what did he do because of that? He raised up a leader, Moses. He delivered them from slavery. He delivered them, freeing them from the Egyptians. And then as soon as they get through the Red Sea, Exodus chapter 15, they, the first thing they do, Israel does, is they break into a worship song, which I think is awesome. And they say this, in your loving kindness, in your love, you have led the people out whom you have redeemed. Love, biblical love, originates from God's own character and it moves from something that is internal to something that is actionable. When God revealed himself to Moses, he said this, and this verse is gonna be on the screen, Exodus chapter 34, verse six and seven. This is God revealing his character to Moses. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh is a compassionate and a gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. By the way, this is the most repeated verse in the Bible. Almost every single prophet and every other book of the Bible references this phrase. Why? Because it is the character of God. God is filled with faithful love. Here's what, here's what the psalmist says in Psalm 103, verses seven and eight. The Lord, he revealed his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. Not just his sentiment, not just his words, his deeds, his actions to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in faithful love. Again, Psalm 136 has this refrain, his faithful love endures forever. If you read Psalm 136, this, is, this line right here is every other line in the poem. And so it's like the first line is about God creating things and then redeeming his people and every line in between, and this is repeated 26 times, his faithful love endures forever. His faithful love endures forever. His faithful love endures forever. And you know what's scattered in between each one? God's act of redemption for his people, saving them from something. This is not a sentimental passive love. Love is not just in God saying that he loves them. Love is in God actually saving his people. Love 
generosity and enduring commitment. This is not conditional. This is expressed in God's character. This is why Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 31, he says that God's, God's love is an everlasting love. God's love is an everlasting love. How many times did the Israelites mess up? Over and over and over again. Yet his love endures forever. How many times have you and I messed up over and over and over again? Yet his love endures forever. Now, I'm gonna be honest. This is something that I tend to believe sometimes and I struggle with and it's a lie. When you look at the Israelites in the Hebrew Bible, they just, they mess up. It's like, you read that and sometimes you're just like, really, guys, come on. You are messing up again and again and again and again. You look at the Gospels, you see the disciples, they're walking with Jesus, they don't get it. They mess up again and again and again. You read about the churches that Paul's writing to and what's he writing to them about? Messing up again and again and again. And it can paint a bleak picture of humans. Here's where the lie comes in. God might love you and forgive you, but he probably doesn't like you. And that is not true. That is not true. It's easy to see. It's easy to see human depravity in the scriptures and in our own lives. And the lie that the enemy wants you to believe is, yeah, God will forgive you, but it's more for his sake than it is for your sake. He's probably just a little bit disappointed with you in everything that you do. You know what that breeds? That breeds despair. That breeds shame. That breeds works righteousness. Because then what do you have to do to receive that love? I just need to I just need to get myself to a certain point, then I can receive the love of God. Not at all. Not at all. God's love is just not duty-based. He's not just saying, well, I guess I should love you again. If it was duty-based, then he wouldn't care if we obeyed him or not. He loves us with a compassionate love. Hosea, the prophet, writes about God's love for his people like the love of a spouse or the love of a parent to a child. That is not duty-based, that is not obligation, that is a deep, sentimental, compassion-filled feeling that expresses itself in action. That is the love that God has for you and me. I pray, I pray for myself and I pray for us that we would not believe the lie that God is slightly disappointed with us. God loves us. He loves us so deeply. God's love is a feeling and a choice. Think about Psalm 8, Psalm 8 says this, the psalmist is saying he's looking at the stars, he's looking at the works of God, and he says, what is man that you take thought of him? The son of man that you actually care about him. I mean, you, you've made everything. You've created, you are powerful, and yet you, you care about me. He goes on to say that the Lord has actually put everything under our feet. Everything that God has created, he's created it for us, with us for our good. That's what the creation story is all about. And behold, it was very good. God delights in his people. Do you believe that? God's love is not merely a choice that's relegated to duty or obligation. It is a compassion-filled love that expresses itself in action. That is the biblical definition of love. And that love was expressed in no greater way than the incarnation and the crucifixion. When Jesus came down, it proved God's love. He did not need to prove his love again, but it proved God's love for his people. You will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. God is here. God is with us. God 
loves you. I don't know who this is for, but I just keep hearing this over and over. God loves you. God loves you. God is with you. That's the biblical definition of one. That's part one of our sermon. Moving on to part two, 1 John chapter four. Uh, I'm gonna read these verses again, and then we're gonna go from there. 1 John chapter four, verse seven. John is writing to his friends. Look at this. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. Everybody who loves has been born of God and knows God. I've often heard people say that they love the letters of John. They love 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the Gospel of John, and rightfully so. He's pretty easy to understand. He writes in very plain language, especially if you read some other parts of the Bible that are difficult to understand. John's like, hey, thank you. Finally, I understand you. He repeats himself all the time. If you read 1 John in one sitting, you lose track of how many times you hear the word God and love and know God and dear friends, and it's, it's ridiculous. And sometimes he even says, hey guys, by the way, I'm writing this to you for this reason. The Gospel of John says that he uh, is writing, he literally says, these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. I'm gonna read a few highlights of 1 John specifically. 1 John is a beautiful, beautiful book, but the truth is always a knife's edge and there are always two sides to a coin. So I'm gonna read one side of it and then we're gonna look at another. Uh, there are a lot of well-known and good passages in this. Think about this. Uh, Chapter one, verse five. You don't have to turn to all these passages because there's gonna be a lot. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Couple verses later, if we, famously, if we confess our sins, he is faithful, he is righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Chapter two, if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for those of the entire world. Chapter two, verse 25. This is the promise that he himself made to us, eternal life. This is the promise Jesus made to us, eternal life. Chapter three, verse one. See what great love the Father has given to us that we should be called God's children. How amazing is that love? Chapter three, verse 16. This is how we come to know what love is that he laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Chapter four, verse four, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Chapter four, verse 18, perfect love drives out fear. Perfect love drives out fear. There is no more fear when you have experienced and participate in perfect love. Chapter four, verse 19, we love, why? Because he first loved us. Chapter five, verse 13, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. It is a comforting letter. It is a beautiful letter. It is a letter about God's love for us, poured out to us. God has given us himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. That's one side of the coin of 1 John. The other side of the coin of 1 John Oh, oh, sorry, the one side of the coin is basically saying this. If you love others, you know God. That's what he's saying. If you love others, you truly know God. Here's the other side of the coin. A few passages that seem opposite of that. Chapter one, verse three. This is how we know him, if we keep his commands. Chapter one, verse nine. The one who says he's in the light but hates his brother is in the darkness. Chapter three, verse 10. This is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Whoever does not do what is right is not from God, 
If you do not love your brother or your sister, you are not from God. Chapter three, verse 15. Everybody who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer and nobody who hates his brother has eternal life. Chapter three, verse 17 and 18. If anybody has riches, if anybody has the world's good and sees somebody else in need but withholds compassion, he does not have God's love. Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and truth. And then one of our teaching texts for today, chapter four, verse eight, the one who does not love God, I'm sorry, the one who does not love does not know God because God is love. So on one side, First John is saying, if you love others, you know God. On the other side, he's saying, if you do not love others, you do not know God. Which means what? If you do not show love to others, you do not have the love of God in you. If you do not show love to others, you are not a Christian. First John's words. The love of God in and through us is expressed by our love for others. Look at our teaching text again. Dear friends, let us love one another, verse seven, because love is where from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. That's one side of the coin. Verse eight, here's the other side. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now this phrase, know God, is a little interesting. What does it mean to know God? I mean, I know God, right? I know that there is a God or I believe that there is a God. Well, John in his gospel says this, eternal life is knowing God. John chapter 17, the verse three says, this is eternal life, that you would know God and you would know Jesus. How do you think of eternal life? Do you think of it as knowing God? Or do you think of it as when you die, your soul departs and goes into the good place? Eternal life is knowing God. And John here is saying, if you don't love others, you don't know God. If God is, and this is profound. Oh, uh, oh yeah, yeah. Look at the, the last phrase of verse eight. Because God is Love. This is profound. Let's sit with this for a second. God is love. If God is love, what does it mean to follow him, to be a disciple of Jesus? It means to become a person of love, right? Now, if God was, if his character, in that verse, his character is boiled down to one attribute, love. If his character was boiled down to a different attribute, let's play this out a little bit. If, if this said God is power, and we just focused on the omnipotence of God, can't say that, omnipotence of God, God is power, then what would it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? It would mean to become a person who is powerful, person who tries to get themselves above everybody else, who uses everybody else, who tries to climb up the ladder and push everybody else down. That is what it would mean to be a, a, a Christ follower. If the character of God was boiled down to just knowledge, omniscient, if God's like, okay, well, yeah, God is omniscient, then what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? It means to just be as smart as you can and try to know everything under the sun, which we know from Ecclesiastes, that's vanity, that's meaningless, right? If the character of God was boiled down to just holiness, just being set apart, then what would it mean for us as disciples of Jesus Christ? It would mean that we would need to set ourselves apart from everybody else in order to be a certain way, in order to be holy, because God is holy. But here, the character of God, from page one of the Bible to the last page of the Bible, is this, love. Love. A compassion, heartfelt love that does not stay there but is expressed and acted upon. 
So what does that mean to be getting this, being a disciple of Jesus? It means to become a person of love. And from this passage, it seems that the primary way we actually know God's love and experience God's love more deeply is to share it with others more scandalously. I think there's a temptation to feel God's love and receive God's love and stay there. It's easy to receive God's love when we're singing a song, when we're reading a book, when we're in prayer. But this text seems to be saying that if you want to actually experience God's love more, you give it away as much as possible. Let's keep going. Verse nine. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is how God's love was revealed. He sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. So, excuse me, so that we might live. Here's the question. Do you want to live? Do you want to truly live? Do you want to have that life that you see other people seem to have at some points? Do you really want to live, live life to the full? Here's how. You receive God's love and you give God's love. Do you want to live? You, you love God and, and you love others. What is the greatest commandment? It's a twofold commandment. It's not one and then a second one. It's a twofold commandment. Love God with everything in you and the second greatest commandment is also the greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. He keeps going. Verse 10, love consists in this. I love that. Here's, the, here's classic John writing. Like, hey, this is the main point. If you didn't get it the other hundred times I said it, I'm gonna say it again. This is what love is, verse 10. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The great lie of the enemy is to say that you have to love in order to be loved. You have to do something in order to receive. God's slightly disappointed with you, so you better get your act together before God can love you. And what does it say here? It is nothing about our love first. It is first that God loved us. God sees our state, God sees the state of your heart and your mind. The chaos, the anxiety, the fear, the unknown, the restlessness. He sees it and he doesn't want that for you. He wants you to live. How did he do that? Right here. It's not that we conjured up enough love on our own. He loved us. Think about Jesus' own ministry. Jesus didn't start loving and then receive love. What was the first thing that, uh, cattle, or that started Jesus' ministry? He was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came out, there was a voice from heaven. What did the voice say? This is really profound. You are my beloved son, my loved son. In you I am well pleased. Then what did Jesus do? Started his ministry. Shared that love received the Father's love first, and then his whole life was characterized after that, those three years of his ministry, by giving and giving and giving. Not just a sentiment, oh, I received God's love, yay, I'm gonna stay in Galilee. No, I'm gonna give up my life for others. That's the pattern that we follow, because why? When we are a Christian, that means we are in Christ. So what does that mean our title is? Beloved son, beloved daughter. First, what does that mean our life looks like? Jesus' life, giving, 
going outside your comfort zone, opening up your home to those who don't have one, sharing. It can, our, our love cannot end in only receiving love. It has to be given, and that's where John is going. Look at verse 11. Dear friends, after he says this is, this is, this is what love is, it's God sending his son as an atoning sacrifice. Atoning sacrifice just means a covering sacrifice. He covered our sins, and then he keeps going on in verse 11. Dear friends, notice that language. Friends, I love you guys. If God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. The barometer of your own experience of God's love is the love you freely offer to others in unexpected day-to-day moments. It's an other's love. It's a first received love that turns into an other's love. It's a love that suffers for others. It's love that forgives over and over and over again. It's a love that doesn't hold grudges. When you become a Christian, you lose the right to hold grudges to that person who really annoys you, to that family member you can't stand, to that coworker who is rude. If you have received the Father's love, you give that love over and over and over again. It's a love that is patient slow to speak, slow to become angry. It's a love that is kind. It's a love that doesn't, en- doesn't look at other people's lives on Instagram or in real life and envy that person. Does, love does not envy. It rather, it celebrates others and their accomplishments and their works and their lives. It's a love that opens your house up once a week, maybe once a month, to strangers, to neighbors, to the person that you keep running into at the grocery store in order to hear their stories, listen, and demonstrate God's love to them. It's a love that's not proud or rude or self-seeking or easily angered. It's a love that keeps no record of wrong. Well, yeah, but, I mean, that's just kind of who they are. They're gonna do it again. I know they're gonna act this way again. No doesn't keep a record of wrong. Well, yeah, but I saw them, exp- uh, they, that's just how, who they are. I, I know they're going to act this way, and I know they're going to hurt me again. Have you ever, have you ever, the reason why love is so hard is because love requires you to put your guard down. Have you ever put your guard down and then been hurt? You ever been hurt by somebody? That means you, you've loved. The natural response is to put that guard back up and say, okay, did that once, not going to do that again. Yeah, what did Jesus do? In his most dire needing moment, his best friends ran away from him. His family denied him and said they didn't know him. And he was all alone, betrayed. And yet, who were the first people that he went to when he rose from the dead? Those people. That's love. It's long-suffering. It's a love that keeps no record of wrong. It's a love that doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It's a love that always hopes always hopes, always trusts, always perseveres. And it's a love that ultimately never ends. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, only love gets close enough to know. Only love gets close enough to know somebody. Are you getting close enough to other people in your life for them to know you and you to know them? You will get hurt, I promise you that. 
when you love like Christ, you will get hurt, period. The Bible promises that. I don't promise that. The Bible promises that. Because when you love like Christ, you will have the life of Christ. And what was Christ's life like? Perfect, full, complete, yet painful. He felt. He was betrayed. He was alone. It's a love that Matthew says, Jesus says, we have freely received and so we freely give. The love, of course, was made most clear in two ways. At the incarnation when Jesus came the first time. What a love that is. That he did not leave us here. And then ultimately at the cross. Where his love was powerful enough to absorb evil. Is your love powerful enough to absorb evil? Or do you return evil with evil? What if life was about loving others? What if? What if life was about more than just the stuff you have, the projects that you finish, the resume that you build, but what if your story is defined by the names and faces of those you sacrificially loved? What if you can look at your life and say, I know who I am, and this is my life, and instead of it be a a, a resume of death or whatever, it's actually like this person, that face, that name, that I sacrificially selflessly loved. One pastor says this, loving one another as Christ has loved us is the pathway to true maturity and true freedom. Do you want true maturity in Christ? Do you want true freedom in Christ? If so, loving others as Christ has loved us is the pathway to maturity and to freedom. Freedom in Christ, freedom to kill the flesh, freedom to live in the spirit. That's the love that Jesus brought when he came as a naked crying baby and when he died for us. That's the love that we will experience in full when he returns. We'll just know it. It'll be second nature to us. Is that the love that defines your life? Is that the love that you're characterized by? Is that the love that you want? If so, it starts with first receiving the Father's love and then also giving it selflessly and sacrificially. That's what 1 John is about. You have received the Father's love. Now, if you love, you know God and you've received it, but if you don't, then you don't. I would challenge you as I've challenged myself the last couple weeks, take a, a poll of your life and look at where you have or have not loved Christ. Now, this is not to be condemnation. The whole point of 1 John actually was to encourage believers to say this is who you are in Christ. But it's good to take a moment and ask yourself diagnostic questions and ask yourself, am I truly loving others? Because if not, that shows you what you actually believe. Am I selflessly giving to others? People who I don't think deserve it. To my, to my siblings, to my family, my, the body of Christ, and to the outsider, the stranger among us. Do I love people or do I turn a, a blind eye towards that? Jesus says, um, when, when when we, he says, not many, not everybody, sorry, who will say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But you will when, you, when you've clothed him when he was naked, when you fed him when he was hungry, when you gave him shelter when he had no shelter. And our response, if we are selflessly loving, should be, when did I do that? Because it's out of our character. It's out of the character of God that he gives us. And now we love others. Let's pray.
Father, you're glorious, you're great, and you're mighty. In this moment, I pray, Lord, that you would send us your love. We would receive your love. Lord, I ask right now for the names that you're bringing to people's minds, the people that you're bringing to all of our minds, that you would give us tangible, real ways to act on that love. God, I pray that we would not be just a church of sentiment, but a church of passionate, selfless, scandalous love to others. Lord, I want my life to be defined by that. I want our church to be defined by that because that's how you were defined. Give us the courage to act on this love. We pray all this in your son's name by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at com, or you can find us on social media at Ankeny Gospel. Thank you.